0: All right, thank you. Um, so I'd like to introduce Dr. Ernest Garlton, who's a consultant forensic and lifespan learning, disabilities, uh, learning disability psychiatrist at St. Andrews Healthcare. And he will be presenting developmental trauma, clinical practice, and the impact of trauma on child development. It's always such a, a, you know, a positive event coming to a kids' company uh, conference. And I think to myself, someone, if inviting someone from St. Andrews, it's a bit like inviting your sort of elderly, arthritic, great-uncle to a school disco. But anyway, <laughs> you see how it gets on. My charity is just uh, celebrating its 175th uh, anniversary, so that gives you an idea of just how ancient it is. Okay, a couple of disclaimers before I start. The first thing is I'm not a uh, clever neuroscientist or researcher. I'm a simple clinician. Um, But what I would say is that um, I've been working with, I suppose, some of the more severe uh, group of young people who've got um, histories of uh, significant developmental trauma um, for the last 14 years or so in secure services at, at St. Andrews. And I was woefully unprepared, all my medical and psychiatric training, I was woefully unprepared to know what to do with this particular patient population. And I think in terms of our diagnostic systems, our treatments, and all those sorts of things, we're in the absolute infancy of understanding this this group of young people. And I think in terms of diagnosis, I think, if I think of an image, this is about the closest thing that I could think of that sort of describes some of the young people that I've looked after over over the years. They are very, very troubled young people indeed. What I tried to do as a clinician is is try and gather some evidence and make sense of the young people that I was seeing and in that, uh, as part of that we had a conference um, a few years ago now that we invited over one of the major researchers at that time anyway who was doing research in this area in neuroimaging and and, uh, with with traumatised young people, Michael DeBellis, and Camilla was kind enough to come along to that conference and speak um, and also listen to uh, some of the things that Michael uh, had to say, which I think were quite important. I would also say that when I'm talking about trauma, I'm not talking about the trauma being hit over the head with a blunt instrument. I'm talking about psychological trauma, just to make that absolutely clear when I use that word. So what I'm going to try and do is explain a little bit about what we call developmental trauma disorder, why I think and many other people think it should be a new psychiatric classification, why it's important for so many different groups of professionals who work with this population, why it develops in humans at all, uh, what's the biological evidence and and what sort of treatments do you think we should uh, should have for it. Okay, so the, the idea or the premise that's now supported by increasing neuroimaging evidence is that exposure to neglect and abuse in childhood leads to very significant changes in brain development and people have talked about this um, already and that a lot of this childhood trauma is actually not necessarily happening in places that are obvious but it's happening behind closed doors okay and that these the current classification systems that we have in psychiatry are really inadequate to try and explain the sorts of problems and difficulties that people, uh, young people have. Um, it's, it's probably worth saying too that that picture probably should be of a girl because by far the most difficult and complex and problematic young people that we have in our hospital are in the female pathway and there's in increasing evidence actually that there's a probably a, a biological propensity or risk for girls to develop more PTSD or trauma symptoms than than boys do. Why that's that's the case is not entirely clear, but certainly there's emerging evidence around that particular issue. So how does it manifest? What What were these young people with these histories of horrific developmental trauma, how were they presenting? And it was a very, very pervasive and severe picture. These are young people who've got problems with attention, arousal, mood. Significant histories of violence and substance abuse, very disturbed uh, attachment which went on on, uh, later on to um, major relationship problems later in life, body regulation dysfunctions, lots lots of somatic complaints, extreme levels of 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 self-harm, risk-taking, profoundly altered views of the the, the world which really seriously affected their ability to to function um, as a person. So St Andrews tends to take the really high end of of, um, this patient population. There was a move to try and introduce developmental trauma disorder into DSM-5 by um, Bessel van der Kolk and a number of other American researchers. Unfortunately, I understand that hasn't happened and we're left with preschool (coughs) subtype PTSD and a whole range of other categories that don't really fit certainly the group of young people that I see. Um, I understand that there's, it's possible that there may be future developments in ICD 11 which is the European psychiatric classification system and I've actually emailed Chris Bruin who's the person who's responsible for the PTSD part of that to say are we going to have something that approaches developmental trauma to try and describe the, these kinds of issues and problems um, in ICD 11 but I'm not sure whether that will, will actually happen so it was a shame that it didn't make it into DSM 5 DSM-5 is the the North American Psychiatric Classification System, essentially. So it was DSM-4, and now it's just recently been been updated. You'll all be familiar with um, this image, baby P, a young man who suffered really horrific, um, certainly physical abuse as a child, which led to his eventual death. What I want to make, talk a bit more about, I'm not sure if you... Have, have people seen the film Spotting. There's a, there's a scene in Spotting where I think it's Alison's baby is left neglected and alone while everybody's sort of strung out and, and, and um, out of their mind on, on various substances. And for me, that was one of the most traumatic parts of that film. And I know that it, it, was, it's, it you know, clearly affects a lot of, a lot of people. Um, and that's the scene where the baby's found dead in the later on in the, in the, um, in the cot. Um, but really, and I think pe- lots of people have touched on this already, neglect is such a serious trauma issue, and it's the one sometimes that's the hardest to pick up, but it's actually just as damaging or even more damaging than other forms of um, developmental trauma. And it's one that's really, I think, significantly underestimated. And I think lots of people have, have, um, uh, have mentioned that. But why should neglect be so damaging for people? What you have to understand is as humans, as primates initially, we developed, we evolved in small hunter-gatherer groups over hundreds of thousands of years. And that's really important about our biology and our neurochemistry and our neurobiology. Because small children maintaining close physical proximity to adults is really important for their survival and so they are hardwired to become distressed and to seek out adults if they're separated from them for significant periods of time and so we're biologically hardwired to be like that that's all about attachment theory and that's that's why it's so anxiety provoking for small children to be separated from adults and why is that because People, uh, things like this, that, uh, saber-toothed tiger, which only died out 10,000 years ago, have been with us in t- across our entire evolutionary development. So we have been predated by pussycats and, and other wild animals like this for a, long, for a long time. In fact, I understand there are still 40 to 50 people a year killed in India by tigers. So, and there's nearly 40,000 people a year in India and the Indian subcontinent killed by snakes. So these... Systems that we have for danger recognition are absolutely essential to our survival, and that's why they exist in our biology. And it's really important to understand that. So, separation and neglect is experienced by small children as extremely stressful, and that's the reason why. And we know that physical touch is absolutely required for normal brain development. And if children or primates don't get touch. There was a whole series of experiments that were done in the 1950s by Harlow with these monkeys that were raised in um, conditions where they were obviously separated from from their mothers uh, and they developed into um, highly deviant and socially aggressive older animals. Now you may not know that actually these experiments were inspired by John Bowlby's Recognition that young children were separate, who were separated from their uh, parents when they were admitted to hospital for quite serious medical conditions underwent um, you know, extreme anxiety and distress. So, that was an observation from the UK that he recognized that was actually translated into this, into this primate research from the 1950s, which absolutely demonstrates. So we've known for a long time, actually, that, that separation. Um, is extremely stressful for particularly for small children so this is i 'm not going to try and overwhelm you with neuroscience, but if you cut the brain in half and people have mentioned this before on the inner part of the the middle of the brain there are some very important structures that have to do with uh, recognizing threat and and fear and one of the most important is this little uh, um, section here called the amygdala, okay, which is linked to another section, uh, which is to do with a uh, fear memory called the hippocampus. And the amygdala, what happens in terms of neuronal development is that the most primitive parts of the brain tend to develop first, um, so that the brain develops in a sort of upwards direction and from the back. So the things that things that um, develop m- sort of uh, most slowly and last in humans tend to be these frontal and prefrontal areas and these areas which have to do with threat recognition and perception are connected by lots of white matter tracks called the 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 fornix and the cingulum two important parts of this part of the brain and there's information that's communicated backwards and forwards between those two and this part of the brain has a role in controlling and suppressing this danger recognition system. So, for example, if you go to the zoo, you're expecting to see a tiger. So the frontal part of your brain is telling you, there's a tiger, but it's behind a cage. I'm safe. I don't have to run away. If you were to walk out of this theatre and see a tiger, you might have a completely different response, obviously, (laughs) hopefully. This system, it's important to recognize, this system is very automatic, it's not under your conscious control. So for example, if you, I remember a while back I was coming out, getting out of the shower, I reached for my towel and then I dropped it almost straight away. I hadn't actually thought about why that was until I picked up the towel and underneath it there was a spike, so it was, so my my amygdala through my uh, visual receptor system had picked up that there could be something that was harmful or danger. I dropped that towel, there was an automatic response before I'd even had a chance to consciously process that. So that gives you an idea of just how automatic these systems are. This is something about how the brain development, develops. Obviously, the brain has to form neurons, which is called neurogenesis. They have to differentiate into all the different types of brain cells. They have to migrate to the right places in the brain. They have to join up all the other brain cells some of those joins have to be pruned to make the, the brain more efficient and then gradually those brain all the all those brain connections get covered with a special type of fat called myelin which increases the efficiency of transmission and some of the some of this myelination people have mentioned is still happening in parts of the frontal brain and the what's called the corpus callosum the bit that joins the two brains together in your mid to late 20s so those those parts of your brain are still developing actually quite late And this is cross-section of the adrenal gland. This is the gland, obviously, that is part of the stress response system, and it secretes a whole range of hormones to help the flight-fight response. But the hormones that are particularly problematic for the brain, if if they continue in sort of high concentrations for a long time, are what are called the glucocorticoids. So what happens is that these this part of this 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 gland sitting on top of your kidney has communication with various parts of the limbic system and the the brain to release under you know quite quickly large amounts of hormones that are going to help you either run away or fight a predator or whatever it happens to be Um, and that's under control of those these the, the amygdala and the other systems that that we've talked about one of the problems with the young people that we see is that their amygdala becomes hypersensitive. It's a bit like that um, uh, you buy a smoke alarm that's oversensitive and every time you turn the toaster on, it goes off. Okay, they have an amygdala that's hypersensitive like that, so they're much more likely to flip into these high states of arousal. And we know that these glucocorticoids do lots of bad things in terms of stopping... The, the the neurons developing properly and joining up with, with other neurons and they actually under you know prolonged high concentrations they can actually cause um, neuronal death but interestingly the research also shows that these can be reversed if you can reduce these stress hormones if you can provide with enrichment in various ways and also if you can undertake physical exercise, which is of course what you do as part of the, the, the fight-flight response. Okay, we thought we had it all sort of sussed out and then we had epigenetics and I don't know if people know about epigenetics but we used to think there was environment and there were genes but now we understand actually that epigenetics means that the environment can have a profound effect. On genes and can actually change genes. And so, what, what this is actually saying is that the the um, environment of a mother can affect uh, can potentially affect the genetic, I suppose, makeup of not only her child but her grandchild. So this has the potential to really be quite significant when you think about intergenerational transmission of stress we know that this is a major problem that there are particular families where there are that there's a transmission of one trauma from, the gen- from generation to the next we know that that profoundly affects our, people's ability to parent make a whole range of sort of life decisions um, and that that epigenetics may be playing a role in having that um, intergenerational transmission continue and that's something perhaps that we had not considered before. I don't know if, how many of you have had an MRI scan. Um, I have one recently. Um, it's a pretty disconcerting experience actually. You sort of pushed into a rather small space and if you closed your eyes there's so much banging and whirring and noise around you, you'd think that someone was building your coffin. It's really quite a disconcerting experience. Most of the young people that I look after wouldn't be able to tolerate that. So what that means is that all the neuroimaging evidence that we have is all based on people actually who aren't as severely affected as a lot of people who are in some of the services that I work in. So I wonder what their brains look like. Um, I bet they would be pretty um, dysfunctional. we have the, uh, I don't know if have any of you been in the park across the road um, from here but there's a there's a bust of John Hunter who is the father of um, anatomy basically in the UK uh, he would be absolutely amazed if he could see some of the neuroimaging evidence that we that we have today this is a this is a technique called DTI, which DTI should be familiar to people um, this research has been published sorry Diffuse attention imaging. So it's a very, very clever technique. Issy probably knows more about it than I do. (laughs) Um, But it's particularly good at looking at um, long tracks and um, neuronal connections. And there's starting to be, in the last couple of years, quite a lot of papers published using DTI, which is starting to reinforce some of the, the deficits and deficiencies particularly those connections between the limbic system and the frontal and prefrontal lobes and the connections between the two (coughs) halves of the brain is evidence to to show to support the other evidence that we had from the older technology MRIs and CT scans that there's significant changes and impairment and and loss in those areas as a result of developmental trauma. Okay, this is some of the older um, evidence, this is Michael and work, you know, quite a long time ago now but you can see that these these changes and these are outpatients these aren't inpatients these changes are quite gross when you see how much bigger the ventricles these are the sort of spaces within the brain that are filled with fluid how much bigger they are in maltreated children in comparison to normal controls I mean we're not talking about subtle changes here we're talking about gross changes that you can see as 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 as, as non-clinicians you know and and non you know sort of specialists really the is you know the, the the changes are really quite obvious so it's the issue is really about this area which is the threat perception area and communication with this area with the prefrontal lobes which which in adolescence increasingly develops and is able to suppress some of these responses and what, we've, what the other interesting evidence is that as as you know that the brain development of this area is a lot earlier than this area. And actually, the evidence is that abuse and neglect in late childhood and early teenage years tends to, tends to affect the prefrontal areas predominantly. So it's quite complicated because earlier abuse, you'll tend to get more effects that are likely in the, in the limbic areas. I mean, that's probably a gross oversimplification, but in general, um, that appears to be the, the case based on, on, on evidence. So these are, this is sort of a, a summary because there's, there's lots of controversy in, in this area about exactly what's different but I think most people would agree that the research does say that these children have a smaller overs- uh, uh, overall brain size, a smaller corpus callosum, the interconnection between the brain, they have a less active hippocampus which is actually the same size, okay in children but seems to decrease in size in adults. That it's correlated with um, the most severe um, symptoms. They've got um, major problems with their um, hypothalamic um, systems that have to do with stress neurohormones. That they're chronically elevated, so they get high levels of excreted catecholamines, and they perform more poorly on a whole range of of um, cognitive uh, testing. So, what do we see? You know, what do we see in practice? We see very, very, very angry young people um, who have sometimes (coughs) engaged in really quite serious violence and whose management, (coughs) given that particular propensity, is quite problematic and can flip in a very, very short space of time, within a second, from being calm to being in in states of really extreme arousal. Okay. We get young people who are modulating their extreme dysphoric Sensations, And a lot of these, because the abuse occurs so early, they don't have any narrative memory. They can't say, oh, I remember my dad or my mum neglecting or hitting me. All they have is bad feelings. And they're they're modulating some of those feelings by using recurrent deliberate self-harm. And we have to start to try and teach them more appropriate ways to manage some of that intense dysphoria. And they do really risky and impulsive things. Um, I think... One of the things about changing the paradigm and thinking about this as as an issue of brain development, um, I don't want to use the word brain damage, but but brain impairment, is that prevention is better than cure, that's pretty obvious. The timescales for treatment are long. We're not talking about young people getting better with a few sessions of psychotherapy. Um, But neuroplasticity can happen and recovery is actually possible so what what are some of the simple things that we've tried to do in terms of our program well if people are people if people are undertaking brain repair they need the building blocks of brain repair they need essential fatty acids for example (coughs) omega-3 fatty acids to help that process of brain repair so it's really important that their nutrition is good and regular and has all the essential nutrients as part of that process we do use things like beta blockers to try and block some of the, um, some of the hormones that are that are um, uh, causing arousal, so that seems, seems to be quite um, helpful. There's some emerging evidence potentially about the use of uh, drugs like oxytocin, I understand that might be being published in the next couple of years that might be additional, but by and large there aren't, there's no magic pill that we can give people that's going to cure their um, developmental trauma. Um, We do a huge amount of sensory work with people. That seems to be really effective because obviously they've been deprived of of sensory input. A lot of young people come into our service and actually, because in a a secure setting, the the whole issue about staff-patient contact is really problematic. And sometimes the only way they could get it was by being physically aggressive so they could be restrained. And obviously that's really risky, so we don't want to do that. So it's about replacing that sensory input. So we have things like massage chairs. We have things like weighted blankets. We have a whole range of kind of sensory things that people can use to try and modulate some of those internal somatic feelings that they have, that we think are related to their um, to their trauma histories. So that's really, really important. I can't overplay the importance of those kinds of sensory sensory inputs and physical exercise. We know, for example, that um, there's a hormone called um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. That's actually increased when people do physical exercise. So it makes sense, actually, that a lot of the energy and the, the anxiety and the stress is actually channeled into physical exercise. And I'm not talking about occasional physical exercise, I'm talking about regular physical exercise. That's a really, really important part of the program. So if you're providing services to these group of young people, you have to have within your secure perimeter, in our case, facilities where young people can get lots and lots of physical exercise. That's absolutely vital. So there, three simple things, and I've put just a, a sort of a, a summary of other sorts of things, perhaps that particularly a secure service like us would have to would have to provide. Um, there's a whole range of issues about the model of care in terms of trying to prevent people having to move, make multiple transitions, for example, before they move back to the community. That's Another discussion that we're having with our commissioners because they like people to move through lots of different settings before they move back to the community to test out their risk might be great for adults, but I don't think it's right for these young people. So we're we're having discussions with them about that. So those are some of the things. The one of the conferences I went to, we had um, we had drummers. I remember, and I was so so impressed with them. Um, with the gender drumming that I actually bought some and so we have a we have a drum group now as part of our as part of our our program so that's just one way that Camilla's influenced our um, our program right Uh, So I'd now like to invite Professor Stephen Briggs uh, to the podium and he's from the Cass School of Education and Communities,
1: the University of East London, and he'll be presenting on how kids' company interventions work for young people, hearing the voices of young people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
3: okay. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to do my thanks at the beginning because what happens is that I get caught up with it all and then sometimes forget to do them at the end, and they're very important. Um, and so, the thanks I want to thank Camilla and kids' company staff, and particularly Yvonne Siegel, who really helped us a lot during the course of the, the work we did, my research team, and the young people themselves. Because what I'm going to talk about is a research project, qualitative evaluation of kids' companies legit living program and there's the research team that I've just thanked and it's, it's kind of it's quite hot off the press it's actually finished but the report is still in draft and still going through some more consultations um, at the heart of what we did was we it's the, pro, the research was about meeting with and talking with young people about their experiences in kids company so hence the trying to hear the voices of the young people I'm, just, I'm going to begin by then just giving a, a few little snippets of some of the things they said to us, um, which I'll then pick up on the themes that are involved in the, these short quotations. First of all, someone said, one young person said, I've matured quickly because of what happened in my life from the age of four. I've been looking after my family. We didn't really have that much food, clothes. We didn't know when we were going to eat, how long the food was going to last. Um, so, pretty clearly someone in poverty and also having a parental responsibilities at the tender age of four. Second, so I don't like talking about stuff. I tend to bury it until I explode. I don't want to talk to anyone. I just stay in bed, hide away, hope it goes away. And behind all of that is the experiences in the past that she doesn't want to talk about and the impact of trauma on her. Her states of mind and what she feels able to do in her social world, or not able to do. Um, I didn't know how to like talk to people, which I think is you know there's a a massive amount behind that. It's a basic fact, isn't it, of being able to talk to people. If parents talk to you, then you learn to talk in language. As someone who is clearly you know very socially inhibited, Um, this one is from a young person, a man who said, if there weren't organisations like Kids' Company about, I would have been terrorising the streets, literally like a menace to society, something I would not like to have become, luckily I had Kids' Company. So again, sort of hinting at the background of criminality and violence and so on. I'm just going to say a little bit about what we did. I won't... I won't go too much into methods but I think it's quite, I won't make it an academic research paper but it it is important just to say a bit about how we went about it and what we aim to do. So we aim to assess the outcomes for a sample of young people who are using kids' company services. We aim to assess the process of change through trying to listen to young people reflecting on their experiences and thirdly to... Make a contribution to understanding how kids' company interventions impact on the lives and issues facing young people. And what we did was to use a method of qualitative longitudinal interviewing. So we would interview young people at different time points. In this case, it's three time points at the beginning, after six months, and after another six months. And the interviews are in depth. So, and, so what we're after is the story that the young peace person will tell us about their experiences. And we use what we call practice near methods, which are a way of trying to stay close to this detail and real life experience, lived experience, whilst also being able to be rigorous and systematic when it comes to findings. Um, The sample that we had were a range of young people over between um, 13, 12 was the youngest person who were interviewed, as I say, at least three, six-monthly interviews, we interviewed 29. Young people at baseline 27 after six months and 22 after at least 12 months which is not a bad return um, and we certainly had factored in that we would not get quite so many young people going all the way through so basically what we what I'll present to you is the study of the 22 young people who went all the way through the 12 months period of the study as I say we do in-depth qualitative <coughs> interviews with young people we also did in-depth interviews with a sample of key workers, of 10 key workers, and we um, had access to and looked at the kids' company case notes. So we were able to triangulate some of the uh, issues that came up in the, in, in the interviews. Um, the interview schedule itself was quite simple. There were four questions, each followed by prompts, but really allowing the young person to develop the story in the way that they, uh, they could or wanted to. Bearing in mind that when we we start out with the young people, there we are strangers to them. There is no reason why they should tell us everything how it is. They will relate to us and tell us what they feel comfortable in in talking about. As the relationship developed with the interview, of course, they would feel more able to tell us a bit bit more. Um, And gradually, we did. We think build up quite good rapport with most of the young people that we interviewed and got quite good in depth. Interviews, good quality data to work with. The four questions were simply um, where are you now? What's your life like now? Um, secondly, what was happening when you first started to access kids' company? Um, what, what happened in your life before then as we're going back into their past? And then thirdly, what, what are kids' company interventions? What are, kids, what are you doing at kids' company? What are you um, what you're getting, as it were? And then finally, what do you think the future offers? What hopes or Uh, Issues do you see in the future? And I can point this thing. I'll work this out before. Mm -hmm. Just like that, just to again say that. Therefore, we get a lot of narrative data, (laughs) which we then have to do to work with. So there's three phases to this. The first is we get these narrative interviews with 22 participants that I've mentioned. There's a big focus on in the data analysis on the quality of interactions with the researcher and the emotional qualities of the interview and as I have said analyze using practice near methods and then we generate profiles from the narratives which are categories uh, generate categories which we tabulate into the um, from the interviews We actually clustered them by by age group because we were going across this uh, wide age range and I'll show you that in a minute and then we so the aim is to then assess outcomes. So we, we get—it's quite clear with qualitative methods you can get a lot about process. What we're also saying here is that you can get outcomes if you follow this systematic approach. We get both hard and soft categories of outcomes, and then finally we write case studies, some selective case studies, and they all follow the same uh, structure, which is written down there: initial assessment, backgrounds issues of the first interview changes after six months changes after 12 months gains positive outcomes and current challenges and just quite quickly these are the four clusters we had uh, under 16 16 to 19 19 to 22 and 22 and above and they're the numbers in this column of the young people who went all the way through the study and the number that we had at the baseline okay so what do we find Well first of all um, what we got was looking at backgrounds, this is what we got at the baseline is that um, again uh, I'll point again Um, at this side we've got the family backgrounds that were traumatising through what we've heard about great, lots of stories and issues of abuse, neglect violence, poverty, marginalisation, young people being disrupted and separated from their families, lots of parental mental ill health lots of parental substance abuse and lots of criminality we got a very detailed picture of some very disturbed difficult deprived backgrounds and then on this side we had a lot of evidence that young people were marginalized enduring poverty they had experienced educational failure extensive mental and physical health problems They're engaged in risky, antisocial behaviours, whole range of those, and also that where their families are disrupted and where they've been subject to abuse in their families, there was for this sample there's quite a failure in terms of societal support systems picking up these young people and presenting them with alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite some quite drastic failures as well that we came across. So there's pretty clearly we've got a, 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 a sample of young people who are in very difficult circumstances to put it very mildly really. And as we're saying a grim picture, that's a quote from our report, a grim picture was identified of the backgrounds and issues faced by these young people. And putting those into the clusters again we... The youngest ones you could see there actually where the kids company intervention was to a great extent preventative of the, uh, these young people in their families whereas for the majority of young people in clusters 2, 3 and 4 these young people were no longer living in their families um, and in fact had spent a number of, t- a number of years in either uh, other families, other accommodation or actually in some cases in no families at all. Uh, The basic needs had not been met and I think this is is actually in a sense the hard evidence that we could actually get. It may be that these these figures actually understate the problems but out of the 29 young people at baseline, 17 had problems with sleeping, 13 had problems with eating, 25 had serious housing problems in which 14 faced homelessness. 19 had involvement in crime, and 16 out of the 29 left school with no qualifications. Um, this is a terrible picture, isn't it? And, but actually, it's also, you think, what does this mean? This is the basic kind of building blocks, the basic needs for young people, um, and they're both a manifestation that there must be other problems as well for them in daily living and t- a test to what had happened to them in their their backgrounds, but also it shows, in a sense, also how they're able to function given the problems that they've had. That makes sense. And they said things like this. Here's a young 12-year-old, the youngest one in the sample. I wasn't getting on well with my schoolwork. I kept having problems understanding what to do, which is, straight, you know, in a sense, a straightforward, almost kind of innocent kind of statement, but, you know, having problems in understanding in the sense that Something was something's wrong. This is more graphic, isn't it? Sometimes I want to kill myself when I'm in my flat, no TV, no nothing. A sense of isolation. We did pick up a lot of young people having uh, feelings of su- suicidal feelings, self harming experiences, and so on. And then a young man, sort of looking back in a more reflective way, really, having to a great extent come through it saying I was in a wave of crime, a wave of bullying, a wave of a lot of things which really made me an unhappy person. And it's the trauma I experienced as a young person and stuff that I saw which made me go into that stuff. Um, I smile all the time. That was not I'm happy all the time. That's the kind of way of smiling to keep people at a distance. Um, and other things. I mean, that's only one interpretation. i oh, sorry, I've clicked the... How did I do this? Sorry. Um. Sorry? Maybe go It's okay, it's going,
2: it's, okay. Going it's going
3: again. It's going again. It's okay. So we, we, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of background picture we got. And the next thing I want to talk about is the. Um, interventions, the Kids' Company interventions, and, of course, the, the, one, you know, the overall, one of the overall aims of Kids' Company is to address trauma therapeutically to bring about healing and repair, and what the, one of the summaries we found was the sheer comprehensiveness of the provision, the volume of work that people do, and the teamwork involved, and they were very much key features that we found in the Kids' Company interventions. And what the, this... The range of interventions is most impressive. Isn't it? At the practical level, there's direct provision of food, food vouchers, and so on, um, furnishings, decorating, a lot of practical assistance, advocacy and negotiation, all kinds of education, classes, GCSEs, activities for younger children in the centre, mentoring, and positive experiences school, college work, CVs, applications being alongside young people as they uh, as kids company try to develop aspirations physical fitness facilities exercise camps and expeditions shows and therapies of various modalities and massage one of the um, something was one question was put to me was do you need all that Um, and the the point in a sense is that, that that's got available um, not every young person has all of that, but that 's available, and the assessment could be what aspect of the provision is most suitable for a young person at a particular point in time and knowing there 's something else there if it 's needed it 's a complete wrap round service uh, wrap round care that, that uh, fits the kind of these young people. It really fits these young people uh, who, given the extent of their difficulties key workers. Were talked about a great deal by these young people, as were other relationships. <coughs> relationships featured a lot in the way that uh, young people talked about their experiences of kids company. Um, so, one person said, "If you genuinely need someone to talk to, there's someone there here that will listen to you. No misconceptions, unlike other agencies. It's quite often that." in these conversations young people would compare Kids' Company with other experiences they'd had elsewhere unconditional attention around the clock there are no empty promises at Kids' Company and the people here to support us are doing a terrific job like, like we may not act like it but we are grateful no, no matter how much we swear at you no matter how much we cuss at you it all comes from a loving place <laughs> honest um, and then this this is a simple again a simple phrase I love my key worker she's great and this is we saw found a lot of examples of this uh, the language of love was used an awful lot I love my key worker. I love my first key worker I think of several other phrases that, that actually that's what is communicated someone talked about a key worker continually repaying her Cussing and swearing with kindness, and said, "Well, in the end, it kind of wears you down, and you end up thinking." <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. so let me talk about outcomes. What are the outcomes? We put the outcomes into these categories. I think there's another one: seven categories. Reduce risk to personal safety, increase stability in practical living, being in education and achieving educationally, and/or in employment. Improvements in mental well-being, including self-esteem and reduced mental ill health. Reduction or cessation of offending behaviours. Raised aspirations and working towards putting these into practice. And improved interpersonal and familial relationships. So these are the categories that came out of uh, what we were looking at from the data. And what we found were, was that all young people, every single one in the, of the 22, made gains in some areas... Increasing achievement and reducing adversities. Most continue to face challenges. It certainly isn't a panacea. But overall, putting it at its simplest, positive gains outweighed continuing challenges for 13 out of the 22. Not to say we thought that was incredibly impressive given this sample that we're looking at. And then um, the other feature of the outcomes is that it 's not a snapshot it 's ongoing. Our work was a snapshot over a year, but these relationships go on much longer than that, and with the relationships between the young people and kids' company i mean and the end depth working is continually looking at new issues it 's not trying to um, say okay we 've made our target let 's close it there, looking at new challenges as they occur and addressing them and we 're also not really capturing here. Uh, able to capture because they're they're invisible in a way but the prevention of potentially negative outcomes is not captured directly Um, prevention of family breakdown for example school exclusion the work that prevents these things happening Um, what's I think it's really important that although it's the, the real life context that we saw was that things go up and down Kids do not go in a straight line. They don't get, I think we said earlier, it's not about having a short-term therapy and then ticking a box. Kids do not go in straight lines. And um, what we found was quite, uh, that a lot happened. It was astonishing, actually. You get, we turn up after six months and, and we'd say to the young person, what's happened since last time we saw you? And actually, you sort of been sitting still for 20 minutes while they tell you there's an awful lot happens in a short time for these kids, ups and downs i mean sort of calling it the spiral of fluctuations this isn't a great chart i wanted to do a spiral but it's actually um you know it's obviously turned out as a circle but if you start with challenges where young people come into kids company and then the interventions and the improvements and then the setbacks and then you go back so there's more challenges and then you work with them again and actually it could become a spiral if I could just do it, you know, I can't do the graphics. Someone offered to do the graphics, I'd be grateful. Because there's always something, you know, there's something then when the young person has a setback, one of the other things we heard was how the, uh, they, they could always fall back on this relationship with the key worker and say, oh, dear, I was doing better then, wasn't I, but I can go back and work with it again. And here's some of the things they said about their outcomes. I'll put a couple up. It gives me pride to get good grades at university. They were firsts, actually. Is this really mine? I couldn't believe it. Um... That's quite a good achievement, isn't it? You know, some education for someone who's from the background that I've described to you. And then this is just an 11-year-old talking about being at kids' company. Oh, it's 12-year-olds, sorry, etc. 12 year old You get to be yourself and just have fun and join with loads of different activities and meet new people and just express yourself and have fun. That's being a lie. That's not being, I smile all the time, and being um, defensive and struggling. And then this is the the more nuanced quote. Now and again, I've got myself into little predicaments because obviously there's still people around me, like a lot of my friends, are still caught up in a lot of things. So obviously I'm going to be around certain situations. Kids' company has just given me the knowledge to kind of see like you've got options. The choice is you want to do it, but you know there might be some unfortunate <coughs> consequences. So it's about giving choice. And actually some say, well, okay, I know, you know my key worker says do this or whatever, but if I do something else and, and this, this young person's going into adulthood, remember we go up to 24, 25. That's much more of a sense of agency and responsibility for de- decision making. So in, just to summarize it very briefly, how do interventions support better outcomes for young people? The kids' company relational attachment holistic approach, like that, develops resilience to adversity, provides social capital to assist the transition to adulthood, and that's going back to that whole range of provisions. And supports investments in competence, aspirations, and achievements. Change comes about in mysterious ways. One young person <laughs> said this. And this is applying love, applying this notion of love. Specifically, and thinking about what the previous quote had said was about, um, you know, I can choose to do it, all these consequences. So, you know, love plus this sense of agency for young people means the potential for change. Um, okay. I mean, what we did, I'll I'll, some, I'll just conclude because there's going to be a discussion, isn't there? The the, the study uses q- qualitative longitudinal. Inter- um, qualitative, longitudinal interview methods to generate nuanced, contextualised data about process and outcomes for a sample of kids. This sample had extensive and serious experiences of abuse and deprivation in their childhood, causing severe difficulties. And the wraparound model of care of kids' company fits the needs of these young people, the extent of their needs and the intensity of the input varies according to the extent of the prior deprivation and trauma. There's a whole lot in there. We're actually able to nuance how Kids who'd had less, uh, less difficult, relatively less difficulties early on uh, could pick up and move more quickly forwards. All young people demonstrated improved outcomes and the outcomes are subject to fluctuations rather than linear setbacks generate new challenges and the young people focused on the relationships with kids' companies central to their investments and improvements. And so, thank you very much.
0: Um, And now I'd like to uh, kick off our last roundtable discussion called Breaking the Cycle. And I'd like to introduce the chair, Dr. Charlotte Page, consultant psychiatrist at Kids' Company.
4: Thank you. Uh, Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yes? Yes. 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 Thank you. Um, You know who I am. We're running a little late, I think, about ten minutes perhaps. Um, Which is a problem because Camilla I'm I'm glad to see so many of you have stayed I'm not in any way unaware of the fact that probably many have stayed to hear Camilla Who wouldn't want to and Camilla is well known for her punctuality and timekeeping so um, (laughs) We'll get there (laughs) So um, we may run over five minutes Camilla if that's okay
2: Um,
4: (laughs) Don't run away um, okay, I'm, uh, you know who I am. Uh, I'm an adult psychiatrist um, of many decades, I fear, experience. And I've worked in all sorts of, um, I've worked as a community psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist, in a head injury specialist setup. And I've also been the consultant to two mother and baby units over the years. I have to say, very little of that some of it, but not much, prepared me for Kids' Company (laughs) because it is absolutely unique and I won't even begin to go why. Uh, You may, hopefully, probably none of you will wonder why we have an adult psychiatrist. I think from the presentations we've had, it's obvious really, including this afternoon's. um, We're adults, we were all children, our children grow up. What we don't do at Kids' Company at 15 or 16 or 18 is say now you move on we've done with you you move on to a different service which is a little different to the statutory services so we have a sort of flexible um, transition if you like through childhood into adulthood and of course many of our young people become parents some of them quite young not all by any means Um, and so part of the process also is to try and help them with the next generation of children that may or may not come under our care of sometimes do but not necessarily because they have problems Uh, how did I get into um, kids company Uh, simple really by serendipity for me I went to a some sort of fundraising dinner a few years ago Camilla was the speaker about two minutes before she was to speak someone called me and said you'd better introduce her I knew very little about her I didn't even know how to pronounce her name I had to ask her And um, I didn't know what to do, what to say, and so in a sort of burst of panic I told her a little story because I knew really nothing. I hadn't even read her work. And I'll tell you it as briefly as I can. Uh, Many years ago I was driving in the dark, in the wet, in November, along the North Circular in London. With me in the passenger seat was a friend of mine, um, another middle-aged person, woman. In the back were my two daughters, who were then aged about four and seven, I think, roughly. And the younger well, they were grumpy, and the younger one was very grumpy, which was not an infrequent occurrence. And she had a troll, I don't know if you remember trolls, uh, really ghastly little toys with long hair, horrible things. She loved it, she took it everywhere with her. To cut the story short, I can't even remember what, what, what the grumpiness was about, probably hunger or tiredness she announced in the middle of the north circular that she was going to throw the troll out of the window of the car now my friend who was a sensible middle-aged woman said oh you can't do that i I don't think i said very much except you love your troll she said i don't i hate it it's horrible i hate it out the window (laughs) into the north circular on a rainy dark night uh So I saw a slip road a little further, up the slip road, across, back down, onto the hard shoulder, roughly where she chucked it out, didn't say a word, out of the car, I dodged around in the traffic, found the troll, back, silence, handed it to her, she said nothing, on we drove. My friend went berserk, you're a hopeless mother, you've got no boundaries, what the hell do you think you're doing? You spoil your children, probably true. Um, How can she ever learn what's right to do and what's wrong to do if you behave like that, blah, blah, blah. I didn't say anything because I was, you know, like pissed off. And um, (laughs) then there was a silence, awkward. Then this little tot of about four, five at the most, piped up in this silence. She said, I think there's two sorts of grown-ups. There's those that remember what it feels like to be a child, and there's those that don't remember. (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, my other daughter, not wanting to be outdone, not getting any attention, then said, don't you mean the ones that can imagine what it's like to be a troll? And I told this story because I didn't know what else to say and I said to Camilla is that empathy I think is that not a child's view of empathy and I don't think we've heard that word yet today so I just want to throw it into the ether lest we forget in all the science and the um, all, all the other wonderful presentations of research that we've heard that actually in many ways you don't have to have experienced everything to be able to Try and imagine, put yourself in the shoes of and and do your best to to help. So, that's enough of me. Um, Now, we have a panel. We have Dr. Partha Banerjee, who is consultant in child and adolescent psychiatry at the South London and Maudsley NHS Trust. SLAM. Dr. Banerjee, please. And we have Lynn Hinnigan uh, who is fairly recently appointed I think Chief Executive now to our Youth Justice Board and I'll ask her to come up and explain in a moment what that means. Lynn. And somebody I haven't met Professor Nora Fredrickson I hope she's here. Ah oh, there you are who is uh, clearly a professor uh, Chair and uh, Department of Clinical, Educational and Health Psychology and that's at UCL. Okay, now we have a title for this discussion. Um, So rather than going straight to the speakers, um, the title is Breaking the Cycle. Which I think is the, um, we're talking about that cycle which a number of people have referred to of uh, child abuse, um, the damage it causes and how that damage feeds on into later life through adolescence, through adulthood and whether it's by epigenetics or other means into ongoing um, generations I thought break, breaking the cycle, I'm sorry I'm so egocentric um, it, w- it reminded me of something else I'd forgotten when I was three my, we were very poor and a neighbor lent me and my brother a tricycle he was five and we argued about it we fought two children, one but tricycle, it doesn't really work and we fought and fought and fought and my father would come out and tell us to stop fighting, be nice children and share which we were unable to do and in the end, one day, my father, who was quite a gentle, very gentle man, walked out into the garden, picked it up, it was amazing, and smashed it to pieces in front <laughs> of our very eyes, which I thought was, was, was amazing. And we got quite good at sharing after that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's a good way to deal with it, but he didn't beat us anyway, which perhaps was, was, was good. So I wonder, perhaps I'm going to turn to you first, Lynn. Um, uh as someone who, although it's a recent appointment, it's uh, clearly a very important one. And I wonder if you'd like to just introduce
5: yourself a little to our audience in terms of you and your organisation. Mm. Thank you, Charlotte. Yes, um, Youth Justice Board is, is, is a non-departmental public body that has got oversight of, of the youth justice system. And the youth justice system very much sits between the justice system and children, children's services. Um, and I think for us... The, the perspective on the justice system of young offenders is, is that they are offenders first whereas obviously from a children's perspective they are children first and the youth justice system very much tries to uh, takes that view and tries to emphasise children as children first. And one of our key roles is around disseminating, identifying and disseminating effective practice. So I was, I was thrilled to be invited today, very diffident about whether I've got anything to offer, and I still think I only have, <laughs> only have questions rather than answers, but knowing I had a lot to learn from, from today, and, and I certainly have done that, and, and I think there were things that, that I will take away for us to think about in my organisation. Um, Before the Youth Justice Board was created by the Crime and Disorder Act in 1998, there was no real youth justice system. Children tended to be dealt with as as offenders. Uh, And one of the great successes of the system has been the creation of youth offending teams which bring together different professionals in the local area, uh, both social workers, youth workers, uh, probation, police, etc., partners to work together. And I think that's a really positive model in terms of, uh, of how we can work together to support young children and that that's been demonstrated by two key successes we've had one is around first-time entrance to the um, youth justice system have increased by over 60% since uh, since the peak um, and that's due to good good partnership working particularly with the police as we heard from the colleague colleague earlier here to divert children away from the from the justice system because criminalization of children cannot help to address the sorts of difficulties that we've heard about and the second is that the number of young children that we now put into custody is is down 50 percent 56 percent from from what it was in 2000 uh, yesterday I, I see the figures every day yesterday we unlocked 1241 under 18s across england and wales now that's not a lot of young people um interestingly enough I wonder- well, that's, that's the number we were holding last night, oh, sorry. so sorry, so, so the unlock is the figures that who, who, was, who was held last, the uh, night before. Uh, and one interesting thing, I was interested in the point about the uh, developmental trauma uh, disorder, the prevalence with, uh, with girls. The majority of our young people in custody are males, well, we have something like un- under 50 of those are, are girls and um, and so one of the interesting things for me and the questions is why do some children who've, identi- who've uh, experienced some of those same uh, traumatic experiences etc why do some of them get into the mental health system some of them into other things and some of them into the criminal justice system and undoubtedly boys are far, far more likely to come into the criminal justice system oh, you, sorry uh, one of the challenges <laughs> of our success I think is that those young people those small number of young people that we now hold in custody are young people who have very complex needs are undoubtedly very damaged young people and who are generally very challenging to deal with Um, 80% of them are excluded from school 6 over 60% of them have speech language communication difficulties and if we heard that the prevalence of child abuse is 20% nationally I'm sure it's very very much higher than that amongst our population so we have a very a, a, a population of young people um, who it is very who are very damaged and we, who we need to do a great deal to help If we've got them in custody the average time in custody is about 77 days we don't have very long uh, when they are in custody and I'm not suggesting we should hold them for longer what I am saying is that actually we need to work better at understanding what works and many of the things we've heard about are the sorts of things that are tried to be delivered in our mm. secure estate but not with the sort of success uh, that that, that kids company are able to uh, deliver and I think a key part of that is the relationship and you've talked about that unconditional love and that continuing relationship and commitment and that is so hard I think for all our professionals as we said social workers teachers but particularly for people who work in the secure estate uh, uh, to to replicate so I think the challenge for me is how can we try and take some elements of that or how can we Work with particularly organisations in, in the community, such as Kids Company, to deliver that for, for, for the population of people we've got, young people we've got, who are undoubtedly very much the same uh, as those who are in St Andrews.
4: And it's a government appointed
5: board is it yes well they're they're appointed by the members of the board are independent but they're appointed by the Secretary of State yes and we're sponsored by the Ministry of Justice only we used to be sponsored by education as well but now only uh, Ministry of Justice which again in terms of our positioning as primarily seeing as children um, is interesting free agents Um, we have an independent board uh, but our (laughs) money comes from from government and we are very much uh, constrained particularly right. around sort of controls on public spending uh, right. that any government department is.
4: Okay. All right. Thank you. all. Well, we'll come back to you in a moment. Um, Dr. Banerjee, did you want to add anything either to comment on anything we've heard from our speakers this afternoon or directly towards the breaking the cycle head- headline that we have, as it were?
2: Right.
6: Um, afternoon, everyone. Um,
4: the presentations were fascinating I think. pull
6: the mic sorry is that better yeah. pardon me um, I thought the presentations were fascinating this afternoon in terms of getting a political message across I think sometimes there is a tendency to, to develop compassion fatigue we avoid stories about homelessness hunger um, people being bombed because you see it so often mm. and sometimes politically and this may sound a bit cynical it is helpful to bring two to the fore neurobiological research to sort of point out and to say look this is another way of looking at this and I think this has been very helpful this afternoon In terms of not only seeing what happens in the outside world but how it affects the body politic how it affects us inside and sometimes for professionals on the outside when we see a young person that is non empathic do we read it as non empathic do we see it as a performance do we see it as a variant of let's say a conduct problem it gives Mm -hmm. us a clue and it gives us a variation in terms Mm -hmm. of thinking about how to engage with young people out there in terms of breaking the cycle um, I'm not a politician I'm a clinician and social academic Um, and the service that I run as part of the South London Maudsley. Um, one of the maxims that we have held and we have tried to stick to is that we will not fail a young person again now what that means for us is that we we will not do anything in terms of therapy or intervention unless we know there is a value added effect that it actually works and for us that is really really important and that's something about bringing the science of what goes on in terms of fidelity to treatments into the therapeutic engagement of young people because we know that when the young person by the time the young person comes to us the love and the agency and I really like that quote um, from the previous talk that Um, kids company does by the time they get to us they have been through multiple levels of adversity the last thing we want to add on to the top of that is to provide something which is not very helpful it is a waste of time for the young person so when they come in through the door we have to be ready with something which has a strong evidence base behind it The art of what we do is how we sell that evidence and how we sell the treatment and how we hold the young person through that process. And so how we bookend our delivery is very much in terms of how we engage, and how we say hello and welcome people in and how we finally say goodbye at the end and how we wave goodbye to them. That journey through Has to be and and I'm sorry I keep stressing this has to be of some use sometimes that use may not be at that time and we also appreciate that so there are many stories I have of when young people contact me as an adult to say something he said and I didn't believe it then Mm. and it's kind of dropped into some kind of focus now that in itself can be helpful but there is whilst they're with us we will try not to refail the young person.
4: Thank you. Um, Professor Fredrickson. Um, you've, I don't know whether you've been able to be here all day,
7: but certainly you have been. Yes, i, have. <laughs> yes, and I, I very well, then I'm very much just going to uh, offer you. Sure, I very much um, welcome that opportunity. Um, I'm an educational psychologist. I train educational psychologists. And educational psychologists are the profession who are most involved in supporting teachers with children who have all sorts of difficulties, experiencing challenges, uh, and disabilities so i've been listening with close attention to the number of times that schools and teachers today have been highlighted for their potential in breaking the cycle both in terms of prevention and early intervention and i think that bearing in mind the the time that we have there's just one main point that i would want to to make at this stage and that is the need In the the tripartite model of intervention that Charlotte suggested earlier, the need to ensure that awareness raising always goes hand in hand with action. That teachers don't just have awareness raised, but that they know what to do as a consequence. Mm. And I think we have seen um, from Stephen's presentation and others how educational failure itself can contribute to the difficulties and teachers by and large are both empathic and sympathetic sometimes too sympathetic sometimes too prone to think this child is dealing with all these other terrible challenges we cannot uh, focus on education in quite the same way with them well maybe not in quite the same way but the focus needs to be there really I think what kids company exemplifies so well in terms of that persistence well not just persistence persistence plus in ensuring that the message goes across and the support keeps going in even when it may not be responded to that positively at times but also that it goes in with flexibility and the very best schools and those are the the most successful In supporting the most needy and vulnerable children, are those that do that. They don't give up, but they offer a flexible approach. And I think if we can think how broadly we can disseminate those aspects across all the schools in the country, then we stand a chance of beginning to make the sort of difference that's needed. Thank you
4: do you think um, that uh, when you're talking about getting inf- the information as it were and evidence there mm. are you talking just within the
7: uh, educational establishment or something broader well I think the um, targeted mental health and schools program that um, I was involved with, with the mm. national evaluation of did a very encouraging job of bringing Thank together,
2: you
5: together. I, all
2: oh, right right. it
7: is that any better closer is this working it's working I think you need oh I need to be actually speaking very close to it okay <laughs> so um, I think
2: oh right okay Yeah, I hear you. I'm not
7: speaking. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think that the Targeted Mental Health and Schools Programme provided a very effective model of how, across um, education, um, mental health, and other services, that sort of uh, joined up training approach could be delivered. Um, But it is one of those things that needs to be embedded systemically. Otherwise, the Mm. time limited nature of the funding. Very quickly results in um, a failure to sustain once the funding is removed. And again, that has happened variably, with some areas being extremely successful in having embedded the work and, and others less so.
4: Okay, thank you. Um, sorry about the mics. I hope we've got it all right now. You two are sharing. Um, I think I ought to invite uh, either or both of you to comment at all on. Well, anything you've heard, and really anything—if you have any hope for, or any um, tactics, strategies that you think will break this cycle—I
2: yeah, okay.
3: found the. Um, I mean, I found the research, the evaluation we were doing, and the young people filled me with hope. Um, you know, and the work that's going on, and the relationships they have with their key workers, as uh, terrific hope comes out of it. So that you know, that is. In a sense, that it's worth the investment of time and energy and resources—that's one thing. The second is that whenever they were kind of there were setbacks and they were slipping back towards the trapdoor, it's, it's very clear that it's the social provision, it's the social context that pulls them back, not something in their head, so to speak. Um, if I, could, you know, that's being crude, but I want to make the point that it is, you know, that the. And I guess that's the political point in a way that it becomes political and unacceptable to say actually we have to resource these young people who we've let down in the first place. Mm. And how to do that on a big scale I think is very difficult at the moment. That doesn't fill me with hope. It fills me with um, trepidation. That that seems right. to be politically unacceptable to say that.
4: So the kids' company model, I'm not uh, putting words into your mouth, you I may, hope. If you wish. <laughs> but the model is... Sound and
5: effective, yeah,
4: absolutely. Uh, but it's a drop in the ocean, is that effectively what you're saying in terms of children in this country?
3: That's, that's what I think, yes. Yeah. I can just give one other example. I recently did a piece of work with a, a children's services team, actually working with looked after children, mm. doing terrific work, actually. was um, very, you know, contrary to some of the pictures that you get, they're actually really involved. Um, Engaged, They were working over long periods of time with these young people. Um, but in the end, all they had as resource was themselves. Right. They were not, they didn't have resources around. They couldn't, you know, they, it was very difficult to actually get any kind of other resource to deal with any of their, these young people's life issues, whether they were basic, practical, or mental health, or educational, whatever. And I thought they were doing a terrific job, but mm. they were under-resourced. Yeah.
4: Ernest, did you want to...
0: Well, I'm clearly not working in an early intervention service, so I can't make any of those claims. What I will say about our patient population is that that we have, I suppose, modest expectations, but those expectations can actually make a big and significant difference to their lives. So someone might make modest and incremental progress but that might mean the difference between living in a secure service and living in a highly structured community setting and actually that is a huge step for for young people. A lot of the pressures on our services are that we are trying to be developmentally sensitive to adolescents and what we are finding is that the pressures that are coming to us are are to try to make us more like adult services. So for example, we get young people who are referred to us you know, at 17 and a half or later, and then as soon as they turn 18, the pressure is on to move them to somewhere else, even though they've only started to make those very important attachment relationships to key members of staff. Or commissioners want us to design services in such a way that, like adult services, people are making multiple transitions through testing out in sort of various lower levels of security. But actually, for adolescents, that's really quite problematic when they've had you know, it wouldn't be unusual for some of our patients to have had a dozen or two dozen failed placements before they Mm. come to us. The last thing they need is to actually have to move to yet another placement. So we've tried to design our services to minimise those transitions, but actually the commissioners and the pressures are actually in the other direction, and that's that's the challenge that we're facing.
4: Now, we haven't got very long because we're running over. Um, I think, are there questions? I think I should give you the chance. There's certainly one at the back up there. Right at the top, uh, penultimate row over there. I'll give him a mic. <laughs> That's a long way out.
8: Cheers. Hi. Um, thanks. Yeah, uh, my name is Paul Casman. I've just finished four years at City Hall, where I was the senior policy lead for gangs um, in London, and. Um, I was particularly interested in some of the things that you were talking about, Lynn, um, in terms of breaking the cycle. Um, it, given, given that, if we're talking about breaking the cycle, by the time people have got into the youth justice system and it's particularly into custody, um, you know, the, these are going to be one of the key groups that we're going to really need to think on in terms of reducing reoffending rates and actually road testing and learning about what really works. Um, I think. One of the big issues, I think, in London is we've got 32 boroughs, we've got a range of agencies, health, children's services, the police, et cetera, et cetera, and there's a lack of consistency in terms of actually recognising what are the priority needs and issues which affect the young people that are ending up in and Isis and, and the YOIs. Just to cut to the chase, how far away do you think we are from actually getting some consistency in recognising what are the priority issues that need to be addressed in reducing their violence, reducing their offending behavior. The the violence levels in the prisons at the moment are through the roof because we've got such a high concentration of gang members in there. Um, So two, two parts of the question. How far away are we from getting consistency in recognizing those priority issues? And then having done that and having the evidence base, how far away are we from actually recognizing effective practice and interventions which are really going to work?
5: Thanks. Thank you. That's a really... useful area to point us at because that is one of our as you'll be aware then one of our key issues of the young people who are in custody many of them are involved in gangs and of course in terms of attachment theory very often the reason they're there is because that's where they form their attachments um, some, help, some hopeful uh, movements I think one that we're actually working with the Mayor's Office for Police and Crime to pull together and we have just uh, the second meeting which I'm due to chair is, is coming up shortly is actually bringing everybody together across whole of London because there are the, the problems are compounded by cross-boundary, lots of boroughs, young people who move around and we lose them and you don't know who's got responsibility. So there's some good work going on to try and coordinate and get some consistency. Uh, but two, um, we're also doing uh, work with Home Office on what you know, effective practice in terms of how do you best help young people who are involved in gangs and I think that is one of our our most significant challenges as I said I think we've now got a population of young people in custody who have much more challenging behaviour and we actually need quite a step change in in what we're doing with those young people and we need to learn from the sort of research we've heard from today and from some of the research that's going on I've seen some excellent programmes going on in some of the YOIs, particularly with young people who are in for long sentences because they're able working with psychologists clinical psychologists, forensic psychologists to work with them over long periods doing some of the sorts of things we've heard about to help them, um, therapeutic approaches to help them through them to change their behaviour. But it's much harder in the short term. We do need still further research around what we can do short term and how particularly we can bridge that gap so that changes that we can start when young people are in custody are actually carried through and supported and they get that support as they go back into the community because the changes has to be long term but I, I, you know, we have we are working on that but I, I you know it is a, one of our biggest challenges we do need a step change in what we're doing for young people who present particularly violent uh, behaviour associated with, with gangs
4: Thank you There's a lady down here
9: Hi um, my name is mordon and I'm, I'm an alumni here at from LFC, which is probably the main reason I'm here, but I just wanted to raise um, something which hasn't been addressed much today. Um, I spent a decade of my life addressing abuse by basically injecting heroin, and um, uh, I think that you know the general kind of consensus is that when we give it up, you know, it, you know, it's a great thing, and so on and so on. And I think that um, you know one of the things that we could do. I spent decades of my life after heroin basically organizing drug users around the world against AIDS and one of the things that you know really became blatantly obvious was the amount of money that was being wasted persecuting and criminalising a group of people who were already clearly expressing enormous amounts of pain and I think you know there are psychiatrists here so I'm kind of taking this opportunity to say to you you may end up working with us one day You know, drugs are not a bad thing. Drugs have bloody saved my life without a shadow of a doubt. And I was able to stop because of kind of interventions like what Camilla and other people do. But I think that criminalization actually exacerbated the mental health issues and emotional issues for us. So please, you know, just support us in any way you possibly can by making that not an issue, you know, over and over again. That's all. Thanks.
4: Okay. Um, actually, yes, I had noticed we haven't, uh, we've sort of skipped over addiction. It's, it's a topic in itself, but it's certainly relevant with, uh, with many of our uh, drug use and addiction. Um, I don't know if anyone on the panel wants to respond to that in any
2: way. No?
0: It like <laughs> I, th- I think it's a no-brainer. I think a huge amount of substance misuse is people self-medicating, <coughs> to deal with very severe and unpleasant traumatic somatic feelings I think that's I think you're absolutely right and and these I mean these feelings are so dysphoric so unpleasant so powerful that people are willing to really Mm. some of my patients disfigure themselves horribly in order to modulate them so they must be horrific Mm. these these experiences it just makes absolute sense that that people would want to do anything they possibly could to try and modulate reduce and take them away
4: Okay, Uh, We could take one more, I think, before we wind up. There's some arm at the back. I can't... Yes. Thank
2: you.
1: Thank you. My name is uh, Sylvan Baker. I am from uh, People's Palace Projects. There are arts and social justice research centre over in the East End uh, at Queen Mary University. And my question is about the wider context, social context, that this work is taking place in and kind of the bind that that creates where on one hand, we've heard lots of inputs today about how there is uh, an economic rationale for uh, earlier intervention or for not dealing with uh, the the consequences of the situations that these young people are in by placing them in the closed estate. And setting that, juxtaposing that against a rhetoric which is characterized by child A stabs child B and then gets tripped to Alton Towers and how this kind of work can be delivered when that kind of rhetoric is out in the public domain?
4: Uh, I'm not sure if I totally understood the question. Can you just put it as a question? Um,
1: how can this work be done when there's a public perception of doing this kind of work as a bad thing? I
4: guess. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, so you're talking about a public perception or through the media or elsewhere are you of uh, have it been spoiling children it's Ah, good question right okay well where to begin does anybody we'll start with Dr Banerjee I think
6: um, I think we start with deconstruction I think this is the only way that we deconstruct the language within which the, um, the choices that are portrayed to the public are binary i.e. there is a good and there is a bad there is a moral there is a immoral choice once we start to deconstruct that in the sense that the people involved have mental health issues have social deprivation um, that have special educational needs and then start using the language which um, to the politicians in the audience this may span um, generations of Parliament in which if you spend one pound today this is how much you save in 20 years time possibly some of that rhetoric some of that narrative may start to change but it is a very difficult situation because people get stuck in silos of narratives which are very difficult to get out of and then are unfortunately kind of reinforced mm. so I think part of breaking that down is what um, royal colleges may be able to do in terms of mental health and stigma what science can kind of do in terms of some of the brain research and social academics and politicians can do In terms of perception and how we sell a novel, imaginative, new idea in a vehicle that is possible. And politics is much of the art of what is possible. It's not easy, though.
4: Thank you. Lynn, do you want to say anything? Because presumably we hear a lot about prisoners being. Yeah. Playing golf, or um, yeah. you know, whatever they're doing <laughs> in, pris- you know, in prison. You uh, know, uh, do you want to say something? Yeah,
5: I, your- I mean, I think I very much recognise, and that is the reality. And we struggle in the Youth Justice Board with that, you know, the political imperative to to get the right headlines in in the in the uh, the newspapers, which I, I won't name, um, <laughs> around you know, being tough on prisoners, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is something we have to continually, you know, um, and and I think I would say. To be fair to the politicians, they will listen and hear the arguments about um, the needs of the young people and them being damaged and needing help and support and care and etc um, but that isn 't necessarily what comes out in the sound bites so uh, mm. I, uh, and trying to challenge that public discourse is tougher, uh, but it, it, it does happen at, a, you know, at the level of discussions within the department and with ministers, but when it Try, p- plays out into the public that there's a different, uh, uh, a different audience that, that politicians are, are, are trying to reach and, and I, I think you're right you know, that, that's a much bigger, bigger challenge
4: yeah, Thank you for that question um, I fear although it would be nice to go on that we have to wind up and let Camilla take the floor um, perhaps you could just thank my, the speakers and the rest of the panel <laughs>
10: Mr. Photographer, forget taking any picture of me while I'm talking because I need to concentrate and speak to my brethrens. I want to take a few minutes just to think through what happened to us today. We began with Dawn, who explained to us Please don't take any pictures with Flash um, because then I can't concentrate, sorry. Um, We began with Dawn who explained to us that what really mattered to her was to be seen and to be cared for and to be identified as an individual who had potential, to recognize her disappointments and her achievements. And then we moved on And we realized that collectively the staff of Kids' Company and its children have been able to create a community where children are cared for and cherished and that that community structure was producing positive results, not only for the children but also for the staff, that the staff felt valued and cared for. And then we learned a little bit more about the types of trauma that children are enduring and the repercussions in relation to brain architecture, physiological outcomes, and also complexities and challenges of negotiating a life that keeps hurling adversity at kids. And then we began asking ourselves the question, How can change happen? How do you make that change happen? Should we be disappointed? Should we feel powerless? Should we feel that we can't bring about that change? Who are we to turn to? Is it our governments? Is it ourselves? Where do we get the step change that is needed in order to honor these children with the care and the protection that they deserve? And I guess that is where I want to start by ending today. There was a lot of talk about whether what we've achieved at Kids' Company is attributable to me as an individual. I'm like you. I use colorful toilet paper. I'm no different. But I have something important that I learned very early on in my life which is that as you go through your life, it is imperative to have powerful values, that values give us an infrastructure, that give us vision about what we could aspire to, the quality that we can drive ourselves towards. And if you were asking, what is the ingredient of leadership, that I facilitate within Kids' Company. It's a very simple one. I want my team and myself to love and care for our children, these children who turn to us for help, as I would for myself, as my team would for their own kids. I don't want the children of Kids' Company to receive anything less excellent than we would want to deliver to our own biological children. And that, in essence, is the political challenge. The political challenge is one in which political narrative publicly makes statements that aren't always authentic to what those individual politicians know on an individual level in relation to their own private homes and their own private lives. Behind closed doors, you ask those people and they will say to you that they prioritize love above all else. And in the absence of love, maybe they prioritize ambition because really their intention in being chosen as a figurehead or as a leader, might ultimately be that through the process of admiration, they will access love. Whatever the behavior of anyone out there, good or bad, it really is a discourse, a tension about the availability of love or the terror of losing it or the terror of never accessing it. If you know loving care and love to be the essence of any reparation, or as the biological evidence, the neurological evidence is demonstrating, in fact, even be the primary driver for the efficiencies of the brain and the biology. If you know love to be the essential ingredient, then how do you do love in the public space? How do you do it for children whose biological carers are unable to deliver that love at that point in their lives. And this is not about blaming the carer, because invariably, if a parent fails their child, it is because they don't have the resources to deliver the care they would like to to their child, whether those resources are emotional or whether they're material or a combination of the two. We've been very good at diagnosing, naming difficulties, and then criticizing when people don't arrive at a point of excellence. And because of that, many of our social care leaders and workers have been too ashamed to speak about the fact that the agencies that they're currently working in are at breaking point. And that brings me to where do I get my evidence from for the concern I have for the way our care structure is going. I get my evidence because the very leaders in social services, child mental health, education, statutory services are coming privately to me in my office and sharing their concerns. I had the head of a children's service say to me, Camilla, I'm sitting on a bucket of shit and by the grace of God, it hasn't blown in my face. What betrayal to put our workers in conditions where they're terrified of things going wrong, but they're equally terrified of telling the truth about how damaged the system they're working in is and they're terrified of standing up and speaking on behalf of these kids because they fear losing their jobs and their promotions. What have we done to our workers in this system? And when a worker is terrorized and depleted, then that worker doesn't have the resources to give the kind of care and love they would like to, to the children who are turning to them. When a child arrives at the social work department or at the child mental health department, yearning for care, hoping for reparation, and is greeted by a worker who fundamentally wishes that that child wasn't there asking for help, because they feel they don't have the resources to give the kind of help they would like to. What happens is that the child seeking reparation is further humiliated by an agency who feels that they can't be transformative. So the structure we've got at the moment, within it there are extraordinarily competent workers and there are much good work being done, but fundamentally, the structure we've got at the moment in relation to child mental health and child protection and the addressing the needs of vulnerable children is not fit for purpose. And it is not fit for purpose because it is under-resourced, but also because it has a flawed clinical theoretical model. The flawed clinical... A theoretical model is overdriven by diagnosis and by the need to label, and by this notion that somehow there is a destination to arrive at, and we have to drive these children towards that final destination. The truth is that children who are traumatised have a lifelong challenge. Their journey is turbulent. They have lots of ups and downs, and not only internally and psychologically, but also life keeps throwing adversity at them. So the most intelligent clinical model to adopt for this group is actually a secure base, somewhere safe, nurturing, solution-focused, and constantly available, so that these children know that if the family home is a challenge, if the neighborhood is a challenge, that at least there can be an oasis of care and tranquility somewhere, somewhere where human beings can make sense uh, with the child about the experiences they're having. A sort of compassionate companionship, a community that is at all times ready to receive that child, and to deliver the kind of care that a mother or a father would give. If we do this, if we rise to this challenge just to add an additional model to our current models of having these secure bases in deprived neighborhoods which children can access, where all the professionals are under one roof, and everyone is working collectively and cohesively where you don't open and close files on a child and you allow the child to determine how much help they need at a given time to come and go as they need, then we will be able to actually take an enormous pressure off social services, enormous pressure off child mental health and give these kids the kind of security and sense of belonging that they're yearning for and in that context, give them the capacity to imagine more positive futures. You know that, you've always known it. When you go home, you know what you want for the kids you care for. You would want what you want for your own children if you were prepared to admit it to yourselves. But then ask yourselves the question, Why are we so servile as a care profession, as leaders of services, that we're unable to bring about the kind of care revolution that is needed in order to change the situation for vulnerable children? So when you leave today, I think what you have to take away is these kids who turn to us for help exercise incredible courage. They place in us a yearning for our trust, our sense of aspiration. They have faith in us when they first approach us. It is imperative that we honor that faith by being able to speak up and ask for the kind of change that intrinsically we know is right to have. And I think some of that process has begun here today because every single person who spoke here today, they're leading individuals in their own fields. They didn't charge one pence for being here. They came because they have commitment, social, political, and clinical. You came and you sat through this whole day because you have commitment, social, political, and clinical, many of you. This is an incredible collective gift we have amongst ourselves. And it's imperative that we're catalytic with it when we leave this room because the evidence is showing that actually loving care, attachment is the reparation And if we are going to be able to deliver that in our clinical settings and in our work settings, then we have to have the courage to talk about it publicly and politically. In the long run, what Kids' Company is planning to do is that we're hoping to generate a campaign. We're waiting for the report for social justice to be completed, where they're actually going to objectively evidence the fact that child mental health and child protection systems are struggling with the level of demand and that they are failing too frequently, too abhorrently to protect vulnerable children. This is not about criticizing these agencies. It's actually criticizing a system that is failing workers and children alike. When that report comes out, and I don't know the content of that report because that is completely independent, what we want to do at Kids' Company is generate massive public following, a kind of demand for an honorable public inquiry into the well-being of vulnerable children and a 15-year plan which all the political parties sign up to so that we can get the systemic change that is needed over a period of time, building on the extraordinary clinical knowledge that we have acquired. The reason our social care systems haven't changed robustly is because we've inherited the legacy of a Christian morality where when someone exhibits disturbed or agitated behaviors we too easily dismiss them as morally flawed where the argument is now changing is that if your own brain hasn't developed the capacity to control your own behavior does that make you morally flawed or is the essence of the problem that you can't regulate your emotion and your energy. Actually, you might know the difference between right and wrong. You might even want to do right, but you don't have the inner control mechanisms to be able to arrive at the right resolution. If we begin to understand this tiny shift then maybe we will change the way we work with these children and young people to enhance their abilities to regulate emotion and energy, and actually that might be a better way of achieving improved morality. Where the Youth Justice Board and the criminal justice system is confused is that it has confusions between punishment and reparation. Because it wants to deliver punishment, the time that a child is with them is dependent on a sentence that is based on the severity of the crime. That is a confused construct if you're having to think about a child who has profound and chronic disturbances and has clearly had it over a number of years. So we run a system Whereby, on the one hand, we say we need to punish this child, but we also need to deliver reparation. But the truth is that the punishment model overdrives the reparation model because it's the punishment model that determines how long a child can be within youth custody systems. And the saddest part of all this is that, sadly, the very best care is sometimes delivered in our youth custody systems because that is when suddenly everyone mobilizes and makes a child environmentally secure and begins to think about their psychological and educational needs. Oh, why? Why could we not have that provision of absolute care without ending up calling a child a criminal? or without waiting for a crime to be committed for that child to get that kind of delivery. I'm only using this as an example to show you how actually impaired clinical intellectual thinking is prohibiting us from exercising moral courage and from actually having the daring to change some of the systems that aren't working. Use custody across the world whether it's actually residential or whether it's in day youth fending programs, has an 80% reoffending rate, 80% failure rate on the whole. If that was a school, Ofsted would shut it. If that was a heart hospital, it would be closed. There'd be an inquiry and there'd be a scandal. But it's children locked up behind closed doors. They can't object and the thoughtlessness about what they need and how their difficulties should be defined is sustained because really, there's no one really challenging it. So I guess what I want you to leave with today is a sense of hope actually. This incredible hope, 17 years ago, we didn't have two pence to put together and we managed to put together an amazing organization, the staff, the children, and I. And it, its funding comes from 44,000 different sources uh, every six months. So the general public is keeping us going on the whole. What that evidences is, is the potency of the individual. It's a collective of individuals who got together, who generated this community who listened to the children, who learned from them, and who dared speak up on behalf of these kids. This is not unique to me or my staff. It's in all of you. The only difference is that I was mad enough, daring enough to actually act out, in a way, the vision I had from very early on in my life. You've got that vision in you. You've got that sense of standard, that sense of aspiration. I'm just begging you to consider living through it more than you feel you can. Just daring to live through your own sense of excellence is what is going to make the difference. Please don't look into it. Don't look at excellence as if it's in someone else. There's nothing extraordinary about Kids' Company and us other than we had faith that it was possible to create good and we endeavored to do that because we wanted it for our children and because we believed they deserve the very best. If you just stick to faith in goodness and the deserving of kids to have what your own children should have and you cement that with a driver towards excellence, really integral excellence not what people see just knowing that you're delivering excellence as much as possible driving towards it and have that as your administrative infrastructure how can I do this job the best possible way with the best methods where can I find the best way of doing this but don't do it just through that administrative process because the most powerful component of a good service is administrative excellence driven by emotional values. One of the mistakes that's made currently in the care profession is that people think administrative excellence is the pathway. On its own, is vacuous and redundant. Combined with love, it is actually one of the most powerful tools we have. And ultimately, the health of any society its infrastructure is based on how good a human being feels, how good they feel about going to work, and how good they can make somebody else feel about their lives. Our ability to exercise our empathy, to express our compassion, is what makes us human beings. And it's that ability to transform other people's negative situations in a partnership that makes for the creativity of humanity. So I want you to leave today making a vow that you will honor yourself for the emotional truth that you know to be at the essence, the driving point of why you get up in the morning, for the love of someone you get up in the morning. It's no different for a vulnerable child. For the love of someone, they will endeavor to behave better and recover. Love is the ingredient, unashamedly is the ingredient. Attachment is the ingredient, but it needs to be supported by a really robust structure, efficiency, resources, and do not accept that lack of money prohibits this. We are a country that put the Olympics together. We are a country that managed to raise 189 million for bicycles for Boris. <laughs> when actually, at that time, they'd only managed to raise 3 million for children. Boris came into power. Pledging to transform situation for vulnerable young people and in fact he ended up pleasing the middle classes by providing bicycles It's that moral moral deviancy That is causing us problems, and this is not about blaming Boris. It's just showing you how people invest where they think they're going to get the vote They don't invest with vulnerable children because vulnerable children don't vote. But you can vote for vulnerable children. And you need to have the moral courage to do that, not just for those kids, but also for yourselves. Thank you very, very much for coming here
2: today.